Hi, Dave Remy here. This is Side 1 of For the Record Program number 1219, War Games Part 1. This is being recorded on December 17th of the year 2021. Before getting into the main body of the program itself, three links. One of those links, and these links are at the top of each written program description, and also each Food for Thought post. One of those links will enable you to get the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. I'm now in my 43rd year on the air, and this flash drive is current as of, for the record, 12.15. Long story made short, I don't think we are going to make it as a civilization, and I think that it is really incumbent on every listener who takes this material seriously to get the flash drive and to make yourself in so doing a repository for this information for future generations <laughs> to the extent that there are future generations in that way when they are wondering how it is that they're living in a rusted out Chevy sport van instead of an apartment or a house and how come they have to uh battle former army rangers for rat-killing turf and eat uh, toxic radioactive herbs instead of uh, vegetables, well, this will give them some idea of what happened. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by sister station WFMU. If podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, sister station WFMU is podcasting the program, so click on that link and you can get the podcast. Also, there is way too much information, uh, going, way too much going on for me to possibly cover in a one-hour program. Uh, please use that third link and subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Tara Fractal, some by other intelligent listeners, and uh, that will be a good way to stay up to date on the many, many, many things that are going on, including what is being called the Capitol Riot, the January 6th insurrection. In my opinion, that event is to what is coming as the Beer Hall Putsch of 1923 was to Hitler's eventual ascent to power ten years later. It is a preview of coming attractions, coming soon to a theater, perhaps a theater of war, near you. Okay? All righty. Now, to the subject material of this program. Uh, in the new year, we are going to do a number of things, including a series about the, uh, uh, really one could only call it the Peng Shui uh, Psyop, because the uh, Chinese tennis star and uh, Olympian allegedly accused a high-ranking Chinese official of sexual assault. Just so happens that uh, that Chinese official was deeply involved with the planning of the upcoming Winter Olympics. As it turns out, she made no such accusation. The transcript of her 
comment is online. It may have been she, not, quote, censors, unquote, who deleted the uh, social media post. But in any event, the transcript of that post is online. Uh, Ms. Shui also posted an email saying she did not accuse uh, Zhang Zhaoli, and I'm operating from memory, and probably my Chinese pronunciations suck because I don't speak uh, the language, so apologies to uh, those who do speak the language properly, but uh, of course... The uh, International Olympic Committee has been non-committal saying, well, we can't confirm her safety or her independence, blah, 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 blah. There is no reason to question otherwise. Um, I'm sure that the powers that be in China are keeping an eye on her because they know how Western intel operates. They will try to poison her or kill her or do something to her and try to frame China for that, very much like... Uh, the poisoning of uh, Alexei Navalny or Viktor Yushchenko in Ukraine, uh, the clumsy Skirpal provocations. To make an extremely long story extremely short, the science of political assassination is highly sophisticated. And as of 40 years ago in this country, there were myriad means of killing people in such a way as it would be absolutely impossible to determine that their deaths were due to anything but natural causes. It is the safest of bets that Russian intelligence has mastered some of those techniques and very possibly others <laughs> in the pieces that things were uh, operational as of the early 1980s, 40 years ago. And if Russian intel wanted Alexei Navalny dead, he'd be dead, and it wouldn't be any, uh, there wouldn't be any indication of foul play. Alexei Navalny is polling at about 2% popularity. He has, uh, among his constituents, uh, Russian ultra-nationalists who in marches in support of Navalny had given the Hitler salute. Uh, does that remind you of anybody in this country? Have we seen any, quote, populist unquote, politicians uh, at whose values people have been known to give the Hitler salute. Think carefully about this one. Anyway, the uh, Peng Shui op uh, appears to be another example of weaponized feminism. Not feminism, but weaponized feminism, with a capital W and a capital F. We've talked about that in a number of programs, uh, talking about the death of Park Wonsoon. And earlier, the, the political defenestration of Senator Al Franken from Minnesota and Congressman John Conyers, one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus, and a critic of the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, and Narendra Modi's fascism in India as well. And uh, both of those removals appear to have come from the far right, both with foreshadowing by, among others, Mar uh, Roger Stone and Mike Sermonvich, who I don't think it will be altogether unfair, could be characterized perhaps as a professional misogynist. And uh, it looks like the just pure drivel around uh, Peng Shui is just that. Uh, George Orwell in 1946 observed that political language is designed to make lies sound truthful, murder respectable, and also to give the appearance of solidity 
to pure wind, and uh, that fits uh, the Peng Shui uh, psyop to a T. But more about that in the new year. I was going to do something else <laughs> uh this program, but it is, although many people will hear this uh, long after the holidays are over, it, we are in the fever of holiday gift-giving season, and one of the things that is a major uh, focal point of uh, holiday uh, gift-giving uh, are or is video games. You can get your Sony Lank Station 2 and what have you, uh, all, all a myriad of games to uh, simulate war and or violence and or horror. And uh, there is a remarkable book uh, that has been the focal point of two recent programs for the record 1217 and 1218. Uh, it is proof that big things can come in small packages. It is a small book with large print. It is called The Complex, How the Military Invades Our Everyday Lives. It is authored by Nick Purse, T-U-R-S-E, published in softcover by Picador Books, a uh, division of Henry Holt and Company, copyright 2008 by Nick Purse. This is a very important book, and just pro forma, I don't get money from this. It'd be nice if I did. But uh, please get the book, read it, and tell other people about it. It is really important. And there is a long chapter in this book about not only uh, military board games or computer games or online games, but how profoundly linked they are to the Pentagon. And this link goes in two directions. Not only do the game designers themselves enlist uh, active resources, human and otherwise, from the Pentagon to help design the games, but in turn, the Pentagon then adapts those games to various uh, training technologies for uh, some of their high-tech weaponry. Uh, it would literally be impossible to exaggerate the degree of interrelationship and symbiosis between the Pentagon and the world of gaming. And so I think in as much as it is the season to be jolly, I think uh, a deep dive into this technological relationship between the Pentagon and gamers is very much in order. The chapter before the one that I am going to read into the record uh, in this and certainly at least one more program talks about an equally deep and profound symbiotic relationship between the Pentagon and Hollywood and uh to give you some idea of how that works, there is a good summation of what is in that chapter in the book, The Complex. Uh, that, by the way, uh, the title is derived from President Dwight Eisenhower's State of the Union Address in 1961, just before he left office, in which he warned about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. He also warned about how a government contract can blunt intellectual curiosity more than anything else. And at this point, 
the number of government contracts that are held by virtually every aspect of our society, as I spoke about uh, in, for the record, 1217 and 1218, couldn't be exaggerated. I think also, and I will come back to this perhaps in the third program of this series, which may be necessary. We'll see how fast the reading goes. But there is another very important book called On Killing. It was authored by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N, who was a former paratrooper and army ranger who taught psychology at the U.S. Uh, Military Academy at West Point. And he analyzes the epidemic of youth violence, and he discounts uh, the role of gangs, drugs, or firearms, uh, all of which were present uh, many years ago. And instead, he focuses on the high-body count television programs and movies, and also the point-and-shoot video games. Uh, in that book, again, On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, he points out that in World War II, roughly, I think it was 20, perhaps as, much, as high as 30 percent of soldiers would fire their weapons due to the apparent conditioning of uh, the ethic, thou shalt not kill. That was up to over 50 percent, I believe it was, in Korea. By the time of the Vietnam War, it was up to 90 percent due to the audiovisual desensitization and conditioning techniques that the Army had learned to use. And he compares those audiovisual desensitization and behavior modification techniques with, again, the high body count movies and television programs and the point-and-shoot video games that are readily available to today's youth. Well, boy, let me tell you, <laughs> that book, I believe, was published in the 1990s, maybe in the very early part of this century, but what... Nick Turris has chronicled in the complex goes way beyond that. And man, if you aren't scared, you ain't right, as uh, blues singer Taj Mahal noted. Of the symbiosis between Hollywood and the military, and this is very deep and goes all the way back to the period of silent movies, uh, Nick Turris writes as follows. As David Robb, R-O-B-B, the author of Operation Hollywood, How the Pentagon Shapes and Censors the Movies, observed, quote, Hollywood and the Pentagon have a collaboration that works well for both sides. Hollywood producers get what they want, access to billions of dollars worth of military hardware and equipment, tanks, jet fighters, nuclear submarines, and aircraft carriers, and the military gets what it wants, films that portray the military in a positive light, films that help the services in their recruiting efforts. First goes on to add, but recruiting is just part of the equation, and the phrase, a positive light, unquote, is even a little soft. At the movies, the military gets sold as heroic, admirable, and morally correct. Often, it literally can do no wrong. Speaking about the big-budget, live-action blockbuster Transformers from 2007, Ian Bryce, B-R-Y-C-E, one of the producers, characterized the relationship this way, quote, 
without the superb military support we've gotten, it would be an entirely different-looking film. Once you get Pentagon approval, you've created a win-win situation. We want to create we, we want to cooperate with the Pentagon to show them off in the most positive light, and the Pentagon, likewise, wants to give us the resources to be able to do just that, unquote. On the military side, Air Force Master Sergeant Larry Bellin, B-E-L-E-N, spoke of similar motivations for aiding the production of the film Iron Man. Quote, I want people to walk away from this movie with a really good impression of the Air Force, like they got about the Navy seeing Pop Gun, unquote, he said. But Air Force Captain Christian Hodge, H-O-B-G-E, the Defense Department's project officer for Iron Man, may have said it best when he unabashedly opined, quote, the Air Force is going to come off looking like rock stars, unquote. That is a good thumbnail synopsis of what is in that chapter. But that, <laughs> let me tell you, that ain't even more than a warm-up toss here. That This, this is, uh, well, <laughs> uh, Merry Christmas, folks. Happy Holidays uh, and uh, Happy Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, wherever you have, man. Let me tell you, <laughs> uh, just keep buying those uh, Sony PlayStation 2s or whatever they're up to now. And hunker down and digest this. In the chapter called A Virtual World of War, Nick Turris writes as follows. I'm breathing hard as I double time it down a rubble-strewn street, hugging the outside wall of a building into which I just poured a heavy volume of rifle fire. I glance at windows and balconies for hidden snipers and holler at my fire team to move it. As we pile through a side entrance, I listen. Voices, and they ain't English. I spot a circuit breaker box on the wall, take aim with my M16 4A caliber .233 automatic rifle, and pump one round into it. Almost immediately, the room goes dark, and the voice upstairs starts shouting. Was it Arabic? What do they speak here, anyway? No matter. My team and I put on our night vision goggles, proceed to the upper floors, and come upon a hallway lined with doors. I hear feet shuffling behind the first one and whisper orders to my team to execute a room takedown. We stack in front of the door, check our weapons, get ready and bust in. Immediately, all hell breaks loose. I see a figure in the shadows and let loose with my M16, cutting him down. To my right, my SAW gunner ups Beginning again. To my right, my SAW, that's all in capitals, my SAW gunner opens up on another man with his M249 light machine gun. My official manual says that this high-powered weapon can be, quote, devastating, unquote, to the enemy's morale. That guy's morale is the least of his worries now. The room is clear, and I'm about to take an AK-74 automatic rifle away from all the version of the AK-47 assault rifle from one of the corpses when I hear a bullet rip right past me. Out of the corner of my eye, I spot a muzzle, I spot a muzzle flash as another shot narrowly misses a fellow team member. The shots are coming from the building across the street. A sniper. 
I take cover and try to zero in on him, but he's well protected and increasing his rate of fire. Quote, Optor has me pinned, unquote, I roar, using military slang for opposing forces or bad guys. Then, more Optors start firing into the room from the hallway. I guess shooting up their building, knocking out the power, and killing their comrades must have made them angry. I leave my team members to deal with them as I load my single-shot, rifle-mounted, M203 grenade launcher, edge back to the window, take hasty aim at the sniper, and fire a 40-millimeter grenade. The explosion is loud and blows out part of the wall of the building across the street. I wait and watch. Silence. I must have got him, or at least chased him off. In the meantime, my team has made short work of a bunch of bad guys dead on the hallway floor. I proceed to pick an AK-74 from one and ammo from another. Over the next hours, I lead my team to the warrens of a thoroughly bombed-out Beirut. Streets laden with concrete rubble, burned-out cars, and disabled armored vehicles. We take out machine-gun nests set up in storefronts, call them airstrikes in the heart of the city by Cobra gunships, slog through ancient sewer systems, and engage in firefights with fatigue-clad militiamen, turban-wearing, quote, radicals, unquote, and occasional Syrian troops and Iranian special forces soldiers. In marketplaces, bombed-out bookstores, and restaurants. Suddenly, we're told that a high-value target is located in our area. Akbar al-Saud, S-O-U-D, a Lebanese militia leader. We track him to an almost decimated building and fight our way inside, spending ammo with abandon and mowing down one local fighter after another until we reach al-Saud himself, cowering alone on an upper floor. His hands are clasped behind his back, and he's willing, it seems, to be taken into custody. I walk up to him, raise my rifle, and butt-stroke him in the head. He crumples to the ground as my radio crackles that we've completed the operation. Maybe it was the adrenaline, but soon after, as we're appraised of the results of our mission, I discovered that I killed Al-Sud, the high-value target we were sent to find with my unnecessary blow. Regardless, the operation is classified a success. Almost immediately, a cable news network announces word of our triumphant mission, merely mentioning that Akbar al-Sud is, quote, no longer a factor, unquote, in the conflict. Only my team knows that I killed the man after the fighting was over. Only they witnessed me smash my rifle butt into his skull. And they know, as well as I do, that if I kill an enemy who has surrendered, the mission is supposed to be deemed a failure. But that didn't happen here. Nobody talked. And nobody even thought to mention the many civilian-occupied buildings I fired grenades into, raked with rifle fire, or targeted for mortar strikes. In any event, instead of being thrown into the brig, Rousing music is played in my armor and I'm briefed on our next mission. I'm still in command. No one seems to give a damn about my war crimes. It's true. I'm a murderer, a war criminal, and a U.S. Marine. At least in the digital world I am. It was through the Microsoft Xbox game Close Combat First 
to fight 2005 that I was sent as real U.S. Marines were in the 1950s and the 1980s into Lebanon. Set in 2006, this act of beautiful Middle Eastern meddling, according to the game's storyline, is the result of an American decision to impose its will after, quote, several groups of insurgents, unquote, took over sections of the Lebanese capital, Beirut. The, quote, largest, best organized, and best funded of them being the radical Atash movement, A-P-A-S-H, led by Tariq Kaban, Q-A-B-A-N, a local religious zealot of considerable influence. My digital outfit, the 28th Marine Expeditionary Unit, Special Operations Capable, is part of America's Expeditionary Invasion Force, or, as the game's promotion literature puts it, the United States 9-11 shock troops, unquote, the, quote, most feared shock troops on the planet. Of course, when you're the most feared force on Earth, you do what you want and kill who you want, as I did in virtual Beirut, and as the real Marines have long done across the globe. Online background material for the game brags that the Marines have been set free of UN-mandated ROEs, rules of engagement, that guaranteed earlier failure, unquote. What is most noteworthy about close combat, first to five, however, is not its military theme nor its realism. Instead, it is the way it came into being in the first place. The game is typical of a recently emerging trend that has melted the video game industry and entertainment industries more broadly with the U.S. military in a set of symbiotic relationships that literally immerse civilian gamers in the virtual world of war while training soldiers using the hottest gaming technology available. It is the creation of a digital, cradle-to-grave concept in which games created by or for the military are used as recruiting tools and also, as it were, to pre-train youngsters. Then, when they're old enough to enlist, these kids find themselves using video game-like controllers to pilot real military vehicles and are taught tactics and trained in strategy using specially designed video games and commercially available off-the-shelf games that have been drafted into service by the military. In the late 1990s, the otherwise dreadful soundtrack for Godzilla, that blockbuster flop of a movie, featured one cut that transcended its origins. No Shelter, unquote, by rebel rat rockers rage against the machine, trashed about, trashed both the movie and Godzilla pure mother effing filler to keep your eyes off the real killer, unquote, and a consumer-driven, militarized Hollywood writ large, quote, from the theaters to malls on every shore, unquote, the group decried, the thin line becomes entertainment, excuse me, from the theaters to malls on every shore, the group decried, the thin line between entertainment and war, unquote. The line had by then grown thin indeed. Today, it hardly exists. The military is now in the midst of a full-scale occupation of the entertainment industry, conducted with far more skill 
and enthusiasm on the part of the occupied in America's debacle in Iraq. Consider the genealogy of close combat, first to fight. Originally a training tool called First to Fight, the software was developed for the U.S. Marine Corps by civilian contractor Destinier Studios, that's D-E-S-T-I-N-E-E-R, a video game developer and publisher that made training simulators for the CIA before the agency's own venture capital firm, InQtel, purchased an equity stake in the company. But the game wasn't strictly a civilian venture. It, quote, was created under the direction of more than 40 active-duty Marines, fresh from the front lines of combat in the Middle East, who worked side-by-side with the development team to put the exact tactics they used in combat in the first to fight, unquote. That civilian-created, military-aided training tool was then recycled into a civilian first person shooter rated key for teen with Marine on the game's packaging and a blurb that explains, quote, based on a training tool developed for the United States Marines, unquote. Then the next section, play all that you can play. Close combat, first to fight, was hardly the first game to blur the civilian-military gaming divide and certainly will not be the last. By the way, this book was written in 2008. Continuing. In 2002, the Army launched America's Army, AA, a training and combat the Army box at the term shooter video game that was made available online and at recruiting stations free of charge. The game was the brainchild of Lieutenant Colonel Casey Warbinski, W-A-R-B-Y-N-S-K-I, the director of the Office of Economic and Manpower Analysis at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. In 1999, after building that the Army had failed to meet its recruiting goals for two years running, he charged his staff with the task of finding ways to entice kids to enlist. One idea that surfaced was video games. As the AA website tells it, that again is America's Army. In August of 1999, Warbinski presented his concept for the America's Army game to higher brass and called for a game that combined single-player adventure and first-person multiplayer action genres into an online virtual army experience. In January 2000, the modeling Virtual Environment and Simulation or Moves Institute at the Naval Postgraduate School was chosen to, quote, develop the game under the moniker Army Game Project or AGP. As a result, the director of Moves, Michael Zyda, Z-Y-D-A, teamed up with Warbinski and that same year, Moves entered into an agreement with the Army to, quote, develop a state-of-the-art video game to educate potential recruits on the Army's missions and functions and enhance recruiting opportunities, unquote. The Moves Institute, however, was not alone in creating the game. Along the way, such entertainment and gaming industry stalwarts as Epic Games, NVIDIA, that's N-V-I-D-I-A, all caps, the THX division of Lucasfilm Dolby Laboratories, Lucasfilm Skywalker Sound, Homeland, H-O-M-E, then capital L-A-N, and GameSpy Industries also took part. 
The game became a huge success for the Army and hit the very youth demographic it targets for potential recruits as well as their younger siblings. AA, America's Army, teaches military training, weapons, and tactics by allowing players to experience uncalled Army life from the on-screen rigors of boot camp to blasting away at enemy troops. It soon became one of the five most popular video games played online, boasting more than two million registered users. Since then, a plethora of new versions have been released each year, offering, according to the game's website, new training and or missions to learn from, to provide the America's Army community a careful balance between authentic realism with virtual gaming fun, unquote. As of 2007, the Army boasted that more than 8 million players have registered to join the America's Army experience, unquote, participated in over 205 million hours of online play, and created more than 1,100 fan websites around the world. Furthermore, the game had been downloaded over 40 million times and had been ranked as one of the top 10 online games for five years in a row. When America's Army was released, it was reported that the Army had spent approximately $6.3 million on the game's development. But according to a 2005 report by the Department of Defense's Inspector General, quote, four separate Army organizations, unquote, paid out more than $19 million to fund research and development of the AGP, unquote. The report also found that Moves, that the Moves Institute made hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of improper charges, was incapable of performing the work it pledged to carry out, violated appropriations law, disregarded travel regulations, flattered requirements to safeguard property, gave the appearance of nepotism in its hiring practices, quote, overcharged the Army Game Project for software licenses that benefited other projects, and misallocated contract labor costs, unquote. I would add, you know, picky, picky. While the scandal over moves, mismanagement was almost totally ignored by the media, some in the press did raise questions about using the allure of digital violence in a specially crafted game to recruit kids. Christopher Chambers, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, former Army major, and the Deputy Director of Development for America's Army, responded by ultimately admitting and denying that the game was a recruiting tool. In answer to criticisms that its scenarios of blood, violence, and killing were excessive, he insisted, quote, The game is about achieving objectives with the least loss of life, unquote. He noted as well that America's Army doesn't reward abhorrent behavior, it rewards teamwork, unquote. To highlight the difference, Chambers pointed out that a player who frags or assassinates his drill sergeant instantly materializes inside a jail cell. Killing non-U.S. personnel, however, is perfectly acceptable as long as it's done the Army way. The Marines' close combat, first to fight, and the Navy-produced America's Army were only the tip of the military's video game iceberg. While these games may be recruiting devices masquerading as toys, 
there was nothing clandestine about the parties involved in their creation. Much less evident is the military's role in Full Spectrum Warrior, or FSW, a combat simulator unveiled for the Microsoft Xbox system in 2004. FSW allows the gamer to act as an Army Light Infantry Squad leader conducting operations in Tazikstan, T-A-Z-I-K-H-S-T-A-N, unquote, a fictional nation which apparently sounded so much like the real Central Asian land of Tajikistan that the name was later changed to the even more fictional Zekistan, capital Z-E-K-I-S-T-A-N against a fictional but stereotypical evildoer of the Bush age, Mohammed Jabur al-Assad, a former guerrilla leader of Mujahideen fighters. So just how was the military involved? The answer lies in Marina del Rey, California, at the Institute for Creative Technology, or ICP, a center within the University of Creative Technology... Excuse me, one more time. The answer lies in Marina del Rey, California, at the Institute for Creative Technology, or ICP, a center within the University of Southern California system. There, in 1999, the military's growing obsession with video games moved to a new level when Secretary of the Army Louis Caldera, C-A-L-B-E-R-A, signed a five-year, $45 million contract with USC to create ICP, says the center's website, quote, to build a partnership among the entertainment industry, army, and academia with the goal of creating a synthetic... One more time. Starting this whole sentence again, it's a long one. There in 1999, basically at the ICP of the University of Southern California, there in 1999, the military's going obsession with video games moved to a new level when Secretary of the Army Louis Caldera signed a five-year, $45 million contract with USC to create ICP, says the center's website, quote, to build a partnership among the entertainment industry, army, and academia with the goal of creating synthetic experiences so compelling that participants react as if they are real, unquote. To accomplish their gaming goals, ICP assembled a team fit for the task, including Executive Director David Wertheimer, formerly the Executive Vice President of the Paramount Television Group, where he established Paramount Digital Entertainment, the studio's Internet Technology Group, Creative Director James Corris, K-O-R-R-I-S, also the Executive Director of USC's Entertainment Technology Center, a veteran television writer, and Kathy Kominos, capital K-O-M-I-N-O-S, formerly the Deputy Director of Research at the Pentagon, where she oversaw the Army Basic Research Program Simulation Training and Instrumentation Command and Army High Performance Computing Programs. In 2003, ICT rolled out Full Spectrum Command, a PC-based combat simulator modeled after a military role-playing board game which was developed under the watchful eye of military personnel who teach at the Army Infantry School at Fort Benning. Its purpose was to teach the fundamentals of commanding a light infantry company in urban environments. Using such a game made perfect sense, said Chorus, because, quote, 
35 to 40 percent of incoming military recruits are already gamers, unquote. Through the efforts of the developer Pandemic Studios and the game publisher THQ, FSC, then spawned the civilian version Full Spectrum Warrior. The Army's expertise and cash made for a highly acclaimed game that garnered a slew of industry awards, including the most nominations and two wins for Best Original Game and Best Simulation Game at the prestigious Electronic Entertainment Expo 2003 and a ranking as one of the top ten games of 2004 by PC Gamer and Computer Gaming World. That same year, ICT was richly rewarded for its video game triumphs when it signed a second five-year deal with the Army, which more than doubled its first contract. In fact, the $100 million award was the largest research grant ever received by USC. ICT is the champion among military gaming centers, but it's only one piece of the Army video game simulation development puzzle. The same year that ICT was founded, a similar but lesser-known initiative called the University's XXY or XXI program, or 21 program, a joint endeavor by the University of Texas, Texas A&M, and the Army, was created to support digitization research at Fort Hood, Texas. By mid-2004, the program had reportedly completed 29 projects. One of its main efforts has been the Digital Warrior Training System, unquote, which incorporates advanced gaming technology features and advanced pedagogical features to train military and battle captains on the use of the Digital Army Battle Command Systems in Military Decision-Making, unquote. In 2004, capitalizing on the success of America's Army and interest from other government agencies in using similar technology, the Army also created the America's Army Government Applications Office. Located in Cary, North Carolina, AAGA, now known as Virtual Heroes, consists of a team of 15 video game creators, simulation specialists, and ex-Army personnel, many of them hailing from local video game companies like Interactive Magic, Timeline, Virtus, VRTIS, South Peak Interactive, Vicious Cycle Software, and Red Storm Entertainment, unquote. The head of the office, Jerry Hennigan, H-E-M-E-G-H-A-N, is not only a West Point graduate who spent 13 years as an Apache helicopter pilot, but also a producer at video game developer Red Storm Entertainment, best known for its Tom Clancy-branded military simulations, unquote. Still, it's ICP that attracts the most attention, and with good reason. In addition to creating Full Spectrum Command and Full Spectrum Warrior, ICP is involved in a full spectrum of other military projects, including advanced leadership training simulation, a partnership between ICP and the entertainment giant Paramount Pictures, designed for training soldiers in crisis management and leadership skills. Think Like a Commander, a collaboration between the Army, the Hollywood filmmaking community, and USC researchers that 
supports leadership developments for U.S. Army soldiers through software applications, unquote, Flatworld, a project that melds Hollywood set design techniques with virtual reality technology and in 2007 was chosen by the Marines for use in their battle simulation center at Camp Pendleton, California, and the new Marine Expeditionary Rifle Integration Facility near Quantico, Virginia, and the Joint Fires and Effects Trainer System Project, which, quote, creates an immersive location-based interactive application for the development of training leadership and decision-making skills in joint call for uh, in joint call for fire tasks unquote when map training aids to improve military beginning again when map creating training aids to improve military lethality icp is at work making inroads in hollywood for example its graphics lab has collaborated, unquote, with Hollywood film producers and visual effects supervisors on such mega-movie blockbusters as The Matrix and Spider-Man 2. The information transfer flows both ways. In 2005, the writer-director John Milius, Apocalypse Now, A Clear and Present Danger, and Red Dawn, disclosed that at ICT, he and other Hollywood insiders engaged in, quote, very, very complex war games for the Pentagon, and we still do that, unquote. By hard and commando screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza, directors Joseph Zito, Delta Force One and Missing in Action, David Fincher, Fight Club C7, I don't that, it's capital S-E, the number 7-E-N, and Spike Jones, J-O-N-Z-E, being John Malkovich, Where the Wild Things Are, Paul Bebevec, who helped create the bullet time effects in The Matrix, and David Ayer, who co-wrote the screenplays for SWAT and The Fast and The Furious, are just some of his Hollywood compatriots who have taken their talents to the Institute for Creative Technologies at USC. As icing on the cake, ICT even brought in Star Trek set designer Herman Zimmerman to create its futuristic workspace. As part of its mission, ICP has recruited some of Hollywood's best creative minds to dream up futuristic weapons, vehicles, equipment, and uniforms for the Army. Production designer Ron Cobb, C-O-B-B, Star Wars, Aliens, Total Recall, for example, those are some of his uh, film credits, for example, lent his creative skills to a program to design the Army's super soldier of the future, the Future Force Warrior, or FFW. The FFW is to be unlike any other soldier the Army has ever sent into battle, having been built, unquote, from the ground up like other sophisticated weapons systems. The concept relies on constructing an integrated system of weapons, armor, camouflage, and electronics that will monitor a soldier's vital signs and the outside environment. Think of it as another step toward Hollywood's long-time sci-fi dream of a fully realized cyborg soldier, an integrated human-machine combat system that, says the military, will transform a man or a woman into a, quote, formidable warrior in an invincible team, unquote. Owing 
to its Hollywood roots, the FFW is at least going to look the part. In June of 2003, General Dynamics won a $100 million contract to complete preliminary and detailed design for the future Forest Warrior Project, unquote. By then, toymaker Hasbro, best known for its G.I. Joe line of action figures, had also received the specification of the FFW concept. Why Hasbro? Perhaps because the military recognized that the world of children's toys was the place to go for blue skies thinking, or perhaps because the Army reportedly patterned its new quick-loading assault weapons on the design of Hasbro's immensely popular super-soaker water gun. This sort of interconnectedness can get confusing, but we barely scratched the surface. For instance, the Navy's Army Game Project was transformed in 2002 into the Army's free PC-based recruiting tool, America's Army, and then re-engineered into a training simulator for the Secret Service and the Navy. In 2005, it was altered yet again and combined with video game technology from LaserShot, Pragmatic Solutions, and Zombie Studios to create the future soldier training or FST, a portable system that, quote, helps to provide lifelike training and also generates data that can be captured and analyzed by recruiters to better understand the factors in identifying successful recruits and to stem the tide of attrition, unquote. Set up at recruiting stations, as well as various events geared toward potential future soldiers, FST's realistic weapons are used to lure in kids and also to test the performance of recruits in basic rifle marksmanship, unquote. This type of technology now appears at venues like air shows in the form of the Virtual Army Experience, unquote, termed part video game, part theme park ride, and part recruiting tool by the St. Petersburg Times. It allows, quote, civilians a taste of street-level combat in Iraq by putting them inside Humvee mock-ups facing a movie screen where kids and their parents hunch over faux machine guns, blasting insurgents, unquote. In 2005, America's Army also morphed, thanks to gaming big gun Ubisoft, into a civilian video game for home gaming systems like the Microsoft Xbox and Sony's PlayStation 2. For about $40, Ubisoft's first AA title, Rise of the Soldier, allowed gamers to learn to be a rifle, to be riflemen one more time. For about $40, Ubisoft's first AA title, Rise of the Soldier, allowed gamers to learn to be riflemen and snipers from, quote, real active duty special forces operatives who consulted with game designers, unquote. Meanwhile, in September of 2006, America's Army rolled out its 22nd free downloadable update of the PC game, America's Army Special Forces, Overmatch, unquote. In addition to allowing players to use high-powered weapons not available in earlier versions, such as javelin missiles, Overmatch also marked the beginning of a new form of hyper-realism for the series. The game's America's Army Real Heroes program, unquote, 
created eight biblical avatars of actual U.S. Army soldiers who who survived service in Iraq or Afghanistan. These eight specially chosen heroes of America's most recent deleterious occupations won't, however, digitally be sent back for another tour of duty. Instead, they'll be found in, quote, an interactive virtual recruiting center within the game, unquote. And that isn't the only place the heroes will be showing up. A new line of six-inch tall Army-authorized action figures is set to be deployed in major retail outlets, unquote. These 21st century G.I. Joes, produced by toy maker Radioactive Clown, will retail for 10 to $13 and are aimed at AA gamers of enlistment age. AA again meaning America's Army. Continuing. Additionally, in 2007, America's Army was also launched as a cell phone-based video game as well as a freestanding, coin-operated arcade game. Latter effort marked a, quote, unique partnership between U.S. Army and coin-op maker Global VR to, quote, create a new communication channel with young Americans, unquote, with input from U.S. Army subject matter experts with the full cooperation of units of the U.S. Army, unquote, the coin-operated America's Army Global VR unabashedly announced was explicitly, quote, designed to immerse the player in the Army culture, unquote. So to recap, America's Army has morphed from a free PC video game to a military training simulator to a recruit testing device to a commercial home video game to a line of action figures to a cell phone game to a coin-operated video game, a series of transformations that typifies the shape-shifting nature of today's military entertainment complex. And the next section, which we'll begin, we won't have time to finish it, in this show is called The Time Warp. Gaming goes back to the future. The U.S. military's long campaign to bring the war home in the form of video games can be traced back to at least 1929, when Edward Link, in the basement of his father's piano factory, used organs bellows one more time. The U.S. military's long campaign to bring the war home in the form of video games can be traced back to at least 1929 when Edward Link, in the basement of his father's piano factory, used organ bellows to create the first flight simulator. When amusement parks turned down his machine, Link took his invention to the U.S. Armed Forces. The Navy purchased one in 1931, the Army followed suit, and in 1934 began using it as a training device. From that point on, the U.S. military has been hooked on simulation. It's still hooked on Link's company, Link Simulation and Training, now a division of military corporate powerhouse L3 Communications, which pulled in $5.1 billion from the Department of Defense in 2006. During World War II, Link's outfit reportedly churned out some 10,000 blue box flight trainers, about one every 45 minutes. Over half a million pilots used the machines during the war. 
At the same time, the military was learning that simulation technologies could also do more than teach men to fly. They could also also teach them to kill. Thus was born the Waller Gunnery Trainer, a device created under a Navy contract by Fred Waller, the former head of special effects for Paramount Pictures, who in the 1950s adapted the gunnery trainer technology into the widescreen Cinerama movie format. This proto-virtual reality simulator allowed troops to shoot electronic guns which sounded and shook like the real thing, had a huge concave movie screen where simulated targets, films of enemy aircraft in flight were projected. The military soon found that one hour of simulation could effectively replace three to ten hours of actual live-fire training. Studies of the effectiveness of gunnery simulators continued after the war, and by the end of the Korean War in 1953, the U.S. was spending $50 million per year on all types of training devices. In 1951, Ralph Bayer, an engineer working for defense contractor Lalau Electronics, now part of Lockheed Martin, on computer components for Navy radar systems, unquote, dreamed up the idea of home video games, which he termed interactive TV-based entertainment, unquote. Again, dreamed up by Ralph Bayer of Lalau Electronics. At 1958, at Bookhaven National Laboratory, one of the U.S. Department of Energy's nuclear labs, William Higginbotham created the first proto-video game, Tennis for Two, not unlike the later Pong, in which an on-screen blip was batted back and forth on one of the lab's oscilloscopes. We'll uh, read this whole project. It is interesting to see that video games themselves stem from this same relationship. Uh, again, keeping in mind the observations of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman in his book on killing uh, this merging of video gaming and uh, military spending and real war uh, actually heightens and deepens as this uh, chapter chronicles, and we will uh, get into that in our next program. It is also interesting to see people reacting with such shock at the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. Well, the way we're going, we are going to be known as Kyle Rittenhouse Nation, I think. That is the way of the future and really should not come as anything of a shock to anyone. However, we will continue with more of this in our next program. This concludes for the record program number 1219, War Games Part 1. This is being recorded on December 17th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Happy holidays.